This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are around the world. It's great to have you with us. Now this week, if it's okay with you, because I'm doing the live show on Wednesday, streaming live at King's Place, it's become a bit of a tradition that I'm going to focus more on some of your brilliant questions, uh, because why not? I, I can't think of so many things to say today and then live again on Wednesday night. But I will tell you what I will be focusing on on Wednesday night. By the way, the questions are brilliant and urgently topical. They range from what is the correct balance, central government versus localism. Highly topical, actually, in relation to um, what I'll be talking about on Wednesday night. Uh, quite a bit on Keir Starmer and Labour. A uh, whole range of different things. The the vaccine war, in inverted commas. All the kind of things raging around British politics. I'll be reflecting on Wednesday night, actually, on at least two topics. It's going to be action-packed. The, the first two... I might do a third, but the first two are interconnected. I'm going to be reflecting a bit, and perhaps you will be with questions and points throughout the evening, on the wider lessons of the furore raging around the conduct of the Metropolitan Police in breaking up the vigil on Clapham Common on Saturday evening. It raises the question so often is the key question in a furore like this, who is responsible for what? And the Metropolitan Police have occasionally escaped detailed scrutiny because the answer is not wholly clear. And anyway, I'll be reflecting on that, which brings me to the theme that I was originally going to focus on uh, exclusively really uh, but they are connected which is what I consider to be the main lesson of the pandemic uh, the pandemic now it's about a year ago when it began raging across the United Kingdom and of the many consequences and there will be many I don't think these things happen and then just disappear into faded memories there will be consequences but the one which I think is deepest, and I'm going to be keen to explore on Wednesday night if you join me, is the relationship between the voter and the state. I think it has been transformed by the pandemic uh, and the vaccine rollout. I'll explain why and then explore 
what the political consequences might be, which political party might benefit from it, its consequences for Scotland. But it seems to me a deep and profound change from a UK taught to view the state with suspicion and wariness since at least 1979, long time ago. Uh, then, uh, yeah, I'm going to do a bit on Rishi Sunak as well, because I think we need to place him. There have been a lot of questions in the podcast about Rishi Sunak. We've now had the budget. Who is he? What kind of chancellor is he? What power does he have within this curious government? So those are the things, if it's okay with you, I'll be reflecting on on Wednesday night. There will be, as usual, your uh, unreliable predictions, world-beating predictions, uh, points raised throughout the night, questions, uh, get a glass of wine and we're going to go deep and try and make sense of a lot. But that's coming up on Wednesday. Now questions, some of which are related to what I've just been talking about. So the first question is from Noah Keat, and it's a it's an interesting one with many kind of, you could do a whole podcast on it. I probably have done or will do. He asks, what should the balance be between government centralization and devolution? Both can clearly have advantages depending on the context. But as you've discussed, the cost of NHS decentralization under the Lansley reforms is now being felt. Do you think the re-centralisation of government could continue with the removal of police and crime commissioners who are due for re-election this year? Where does accountability best lie? In Whitehall, locally, or a mixture of the two? See, this question sounds quite dry, you know, accountability, localism, uh, centralisation. But it's absolutely key, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, to the effective delivery of public services. And the fashion is always to highlight localism in recent decades, especially those who regard themselves as centrists. You know, figures like Chukarumani, you you say, okay, so you don't like Labour's current policies, you disapprove of the government's policies, so where do you stand? He would say, oh, I, I believe in localism. And it kind of provides a protective shield for those who haven't a clue uh, what they mean about anything. They haven't thought through policy uh, to any depth. And Noah Keat gives a couple of good examples of where localism have, has, has failed. We've talked a lot about the NHS reforms, no need to go into the details again. But that attempt to refocus on the local caused chaos and was inefficient and had so many blurred lines of accountability, no one knew who was responsible for what. And the police and crime commissioners are another good example, because they are another layer, but where does power really lie in addressing uh, issues to do with crime? Is it the Home Office? We've got this very ferocious Home Secretary, but is she really in charge? Or is it the crime commissioners, and where does their power lie? And what about the chief constables in various areas of the country and what about the power of the Met Police being much talked about at the moment and its accountability the Metropolitan Police uh, are sort of centre stage as they often are in the midst of terrible human suffering uh, as we've had this week with that appalling unbearable murder so my view is this that on the whole 
you have to pose the question, are the lines of accountability clear when structuring? In terms of localism, the most effective model that I can see is the mayoral one. The mayor of London, followed by the transport for London sort of layer below the mayor, has transformed public transport in London. A mayor accountable for it means that he or she has to deliver and he or she has to get the best people in, as Ken Livingstone did at the very beginning as mayor, got people in from the United States to sort out the appalling state of public transport in London. So that's a good example, I think, where localism works, but we've had two examples where it doesn't. And quite often, centralisation uh, is necessary to get the kind of right lines of accountability in place. In other words, if the government raises all the money for a national health service and has a health secretary responsible for the delivery of that health service, there has to be a degree of centralisation because the moment you fracture that health service, the government and the health secretary are still obsessed about delivery and getting value for money, etc., so it's a good anyway god we i could talk about it all day and people say oh what a dry topic you know let's go on to megan and all of that but actually it touches our lives big time all our lives so thank you for posing uh, an important question uh noah keat jenny sieber uh wonders if uh we've all seen uh, an article in the conversation i i sure haven't on Donald Trump's tweets. There's a link to it, but which you could all find on the internet. Um, but apparently the analysis of this shows that he was amongst the most frequent users of storytelling methods through Twitter. Uh, and uh, this is a sign on one level, on one level, of a kind of effective leadership. He was, uh, I mean, he's you know, he was preposterous, as we all know, and dangerous uh, in his absurdities. But the reason he won and was able to, at times, look as if he might win again was that he was a storyteller. And leaders who want to win elections have to be storytellers. It's not an added extra. And Twitter has become another part of the political armory. And people used to say his tweets were ridiculous, and they were, but they they were him. They were his voice, and he did tell stories through them. We might have been appalled by the stories he was telling, but he was someone who brought to life policy. I mean, he couldn't do it any other way because he didn't understand the detail of the policy either but it was interesting and all aspiring election winners need to work out how to tell stories so take the case of Keir Starmer's response to the budget did it tell a story I'll leave that hanging in the air because there are some questions about him uh, Julia Frew uh, writes, what's your view of the Matt Hancock COVID contracts debacle? Uh, yeah, there was a, a lot about it. And was Keir Starmer right not to call for his resignation over it? On that point, it's a very interesting and close call, I think. Um, a, a leader of the opposition has very limited tools at his or her disposal. 
and one is to dramatise a story by calling for a minister to resign. But in doing so, it does expose his or her impotence when the minister does not fall. So I th it's a genuine dilemma, I think, about that, Julie. Um, in terms of the contracts, the government, in a panic a year ago, clearly doled out contracts left, right and centre without adequate scrutiny. The question to which I don't know the answer to yet is whether if there had been scrutiny, uh, it would have delayed the whole thing. So the whole scramble to get adequate safety equipment to hospitals and so on would have been delayed with even more deadly consequences. But clearly what happened uh, was an outrage and Labour have been too muted about it. Rachel Reeves has done quite a lot on it but that's not enough. Most people don't know who she is with every respect to her and the leader of the opposition is the one with the altar and uh, Starmer has not worked out yet to go back to the Trump thing how to tell stories, how to dramatise. So it's it's a good point, Judy. Thank you for your email. Judy eats dinner on Monday evening whilst listening to the podcast. The menus vary. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that. I, I wouldn't like to think of you eating the same thing every night or every Monday. Although, God, I tend to these days. Uh, it's got all so narrow in the lockdown marathon. Um, a question from... Uh, Tim Blackmore, I get quite a lot of questions about this. Can you please tell me, or us, us, all of us, about your theme music, the title, composer, and artist? I can't find it online. Now, this music, like a lot of things to do with this podcast, provokes passion on either side. The music is now used while uh, the build-up to the live show and a couple of people in the live chat at the live show said, what is this music? It's driving me crazy. And other people put on the live chat, I love this music. It's getting me into a sort of rock and roll mood for the evening. Anyway, uh, I've had emails uh, from lots of listeners to the podcast saying, what is the music? The answer is I can't, I don't know. There's this <laughs> site where you can pay uh, for access to music. It's cost me a fortune, this. So I hope you're all grateful. And I chose this one, and I can't remember much about it. I think it's called something like Surfing Music, but that might be a generic title for the music on that website. Oh, it was all so long ago, Tim, when I had to uh, do this. I, I don't know. Um, but I like it, and my... In, in inverted commas, mysterious producer who puts the music on. I always say, you know, leave the music for for a bit longer at the beginning and end of the podcast. Um, but I can't help you any uh, more than that, I'm afraid. Um, a question from Anthony uh, Buxton. He said, oh, we had a great time, the last live show at uh, Rock and Roll Politics. So I hope to see you uh, this Wednesday, Anthony. Um, and he has been doing some work on Starmer's first 12 months and put it in a historical context. And he's coming to the conclusion that Starmer more resembles Cameron at his one-year stage. 
Cameron focused very much on the image of his party, little policy-wise, and there was much grumbling within his own backbenchers. That's true, there was. And some weird culture uh, rows. And of course, in 2006, Cameron's first year, the conditions were so very different to the ones that would arise when he came into power in 2010. Uh, yeah, that is an interesting comparison. I'll tell you where I don't think it stands up, uh, Anthony, and that is it was it was very deceptive in many ways, but Cameron conveyed in his first year an energetic sense of change, which a lot of the media fell for, including the BBC. Uh, the BBC or some of its uh, political staff reported Cameron and, and used the term modernizer as if it was objectively accepted that he was changing his party and modernising and updating it. Whereas I think that's a contentious assumption uh, with Cameron. Uh, he was in many ways a, a Thatcherite. Um, but in his first year, if you remember, he appeared to be absolutely committed to the environment. His first slogan was, uh, uh, vote blue, go green. Uh, in an attempt to capture the uh, environmental uh, specialist uh, specialists and voters, and he succeeded to some extent. I remember early on in um, his leadership having a chat with the Independent's brilliant then environment editor, very across everything, and he had become absolutely swayed by Cameron. Uh, at that point, of course, later discovered when Cameron said, "What's all this green crap we're doing?" Uh, that it was it was all an act. But he was, I think, at this point, although an imitator of Tony Blair, a more effective actor than Starmer has been so far, and he had conveyed the sense of change. Anyway, I'll thank you for that, Anthony. Can't wait to get your final conclusions on your contextualising of Starmer's uh, early leadership phase. Uh, related to this, Peter De Silva writes, and uh, he's been looking at the different Labour factions. He teaches uh, the new Labour wing, soft left and Corbynism. He wondered what's happened to the old right. Blimey, this is kind of uh, delving deep in terms of the terminology. By the way, I am wary of the terminology Peter, of all of this. Um, you know, what is precisely the definition of soft left? Uh, Corbynism is often referred to as hard left, but that adjective hard, what does it mean? In some ways, you know, Corbyn was almost a pacifist. Is, isn't that soft or hard? Is Blair hard because he supports military intervention on many different uh, levels? Um, anyway, the old right, uh, is that the kind of old union right, uh, kind of trade union right with, I don't know, he, he wonders whether Wes Streeting might be part of the old right now. There was, I suppose, I mean, in the Wilson-Callaghan era, there were many different factions, and I suppose Callaghan was the old right, uh, very linked to the unions, was not kind of socially progressive, uh, opposed Barbara Castle's attempts to reform relations with the unions. But I've, anyway, you've got me thinking about the different factions, but I am suspicious of the terms and how imprecise they are. 
again related, James Burton writes, do Labour just need to ride the boost Johnson will get from the vaccine in 2021 and not to panic? He suggests the jitters feel counterproductive. James, I think you are absolutely right about this, that if it looks as if the government is getting a vaccine bounce, the worst thing Starmer could do is panic uh, and change himself or attempt to change himself because that leads to kinds of layers of inauthenticity that become dangerously absurd. Uh, there is a tendency to panic when opinion polls go badly and Labour should certainly reflect on these polls. They should be doing better, I think, even with the vaccine bounce that Johnson is getting. But I'll be reflecting on the significance of that vaccine connection with the voter on Wednesday night. I think it is deep and profound, but not necessarily to the government's long-term advantage. Heather Howells wonders, uh, the views on how the rollout of vaccinations in Europe is developing following rows with AstraZeneca and negative press on the efficacy of the vaccine. To what extent is it political and what of the... I Did I do this last week? I might have done. Sorry, Heather, if I'm repeating the question. What an honour. Um, the apparent lack of global collaboration. I'm pretty sure I did do this last week. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, the global collaboration was the whole premise behind the AstraZeneca uh, va vaccine. I know that they were, you know, that they were going to give it away to uh, poorer countries. Um, so there's that going on, but there's clearly a lot of politics within the European Union. But I've got a nasty feeling I discussed this last week and I'm starting to go crazy and repeating myself. Tell me if I didn't, Heather, and we'll go into it in more detail. Um, anyway, let's move on to Michael Duffy, um, who uh, oh, loves the podcast. Thank you very much. He currently working from home, so likes to listen when working. Right, okay. Or out on my daily walk at lunchtime in the west coast of Scotland. Yeah, that Inverclyde to Greenock. Oh, heavenly. Uh, now, this again relates to Starmer, who, uh, when this email came in, uh, was nine points behind, according to Michael. Some polls give uh, the Tories a bigger lead even than that. If this continues to be the case, uh, other parties tend to get rid of unpopular leaders before the general elections. IDS in 2003, Ming Campbell, uh, between the Kennedy and Clegg eras. Uh, now, he says, the reason I'm asking is uh, post-1987 at this stage of his leadership, uh, Neil Kinnock was regularly leading in the polls, as was Mid Ed Miliband at this stage of his leadership uh on on the so should labor i think the question is michael should labor uh be utterly ruthless if this continues and get rid of keir starmer well this is so difficult if there was a clear alternative in place ready to wow us all i would say yes because the context could not be greater. Uh, the stakes could not be higher. If this general election is won for the fifth successive time, 
by the Conservatives, who, as I've said before, even right-wing historians, I think, will reflect on these Conservative terms and recognise that the Prime Ministers, Cameron, May and Johnson, were some of the least substantial Tory Prime Ministers in the long field of Tory leaders. Um, if they were to win a fifth successive time, I think that will raise questions about the state of England, democracy. I think it will stir things up again in Scotland. Uh, so Labour needs to get its act together just on that level alone. Um, but I can see no alternative leader. Uh, you know, if, if you can, uh, Michael, let me know. But on that basis, I think the focus should be on Starmer raising his game uh, if he's able to do that. So uh, that's kind of what I think on that, but let me know if you uh, disagree. You certainly imply that you uh, disagree. Okay, uh, let's go on to another one from Stephen Lamb. He says, I regularly listen to the podcast. Uh, great, thank you. Um, he, he said, oh yeah, because we oh, last week I was talking about... Um, whether uh, personalities or the policies matter more, based on the Tony Benn line. He always used to say it was the policies that matter, not the personalities, although um, in this particular case, um, Stephen Lamb says uh, it's true, actually. He often said, Tony Benn, it's the issues that matter, not the personalities. Um, he sometimes said policies and sometimes issues. Anyway, uh, Stephen Lamb says, regarding Brexit, I'm slightly uneasy with your view that the referendum was only ever going uh, one way once Cameron promised it. Granted, the result was rooted in that decision, but there were other influences like Farage stoking immigration resentment, the force of the newspapers and so on. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, the way those newspapers and Farage were allowed to dance around was as a result of the decision to call a referendum. The moment that was made, the idea that you would have a an informed debate went out of the window. You don't get informed debates in referendums. Now, many of uh, you listeners have converted me to the idea that you can have informed debate and then a referendum uh, through all kinds of different devices, but they weren't in offer on offer at the time Cameron announced the referendum. So I do think, Stephen, that the moment he announced it, uh, Britain was leaving the European Union and there was nothing very much that could be done about it. Uh, and and, and we, were, we were doomed to leave from the moment of the announcement. And what Johnson did, what Gove did, were peripheral. But it's interesting that you disagree. And um, yeah, I, I see so you interviewed Tony Benn. I interviewed him a few times. He was a brilliant speech maker, orator. I thought he was less good as an interviewee. Okay, uh, an email from Daniel. For some reason, Daniel, I haven't got your uh, uh, surname here, but um, I will reread it at some point and try and find it. Okay, Daniel says... Uh, Regarding a recent thought you had in your podcast about the future of democracy, oh yeah, this is funny because I've just said it again, if the Conservatives win again in 2024, um, he suggests that we're already in a sort of perpetual Conservative government. 
Labour's continued lack of progress in Scotland, first past the post, uh, the Conservatives again rejigging the boundaries, uh, and so on, combine to make that the case. Yeah, I'm not sure. There are always these great moments. And in fact, in during the third term of the Labour government, there was a book published by Geoffrey Wheatcroft, um, a columnist and author, about the strange death of conservative England, you know, with that echo of the strange death of liberal England that was written uh, in the build-up to the First World War, and or covering that period uh, in, in a way that implied liberalism fell during a, a few short years. That was That's a sort of epic and famous book. So are we now seeing um, the continued revival of the Conservative England? Well, the stakes are very high on the next election, as I suggest. But there are moments when Conservative England is challenged. It was very interesting after 1992 when many assumed that we were in a one-party Conservative state, the fourth successive win then the collapse out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992 meant the Conservatives were never in the lead again. I think Conservatism, the bar is much lower uh, for Conservatives to win elections compared with Labour for many, many reasons. Um, but I don't think it's inevitable. But you do detect, Daniel, deep underlying reasons why it's very very difficult for Labour to win elections at the moment. Scotland being an obvious one, parts of the north of England lost and some of the other points you make. Andrew uh, Kitching, I enjoyed uh, the podcast this week as oh well, thank you that was the one on personalities or policies. I, I said it was the kind of deeper waves that mattered more than the personalities. Uh, Andrew, regarding the recent budget I worry about the public spending losers local government, social care in particular, and the criminal justice system. It's it's an important point that the focus, to some extent anyway, on the budget was on that big tax rise, but that's not coming in for ages, the corporation tax rise and others. Uh, and yet there are real-term spending cuts happening immediately, of which those are two. Um, he points out that uh, Northampton Council went bust two years ago. Yeah, I think it was a Tory-controlled council in Northampton. Others will follow. Um, yeah, I, I agree, Andrew, and I think that there hasn't been enough focus on what will happen to public services in the light of that budget. On Wednesday night, I'm going to do a bonus Rishi Sunak section because I think we need to make sense of Rishi Sunak. I'll be interested in your ideas too. Thank you very much. Oh, Andrew says, I usually listen to the podcast on a Monday night, relaxing at home. I can't exercise and concentrate on politics. I know what you mean. I think it makes some people go faster, whatever they're doing, exercise why. Uh, exercise why, because whether they can actually survive combining exercise and the deep focus required for these uh, sessions, God only knows. Um, another email, this one from James. Sorry, again, I haven't got your um, surname, but I will check that out, James. Give you a name check. Uh, I'm astonished that someone made a comment last week about he or she, it's a he, I think, is in favour of keeping first past the post and against changing it to PR. 
Uh, he points out the phrase, all votes are equal, but some votes are more equal than others. Um, the UK, along with Belarus, are the only other nations in Europe which don't have some form of PR. But he does agree it's unlikely to happen um, unless the Lib Dems force it on Labour during potential coalition talks. Well, yeah, I think, you know, I get a lot of emails from people saying, is the only answer to this uh, one nation state, sorry, one party state, you know, continue conservative rule, electoral reform with a kind of progressive alliance. The problem with it is, James, it's talked about endlessly. And then a general election happens, and one party wins, and it goes out of the window again. So let's see, if there's a hung parliament, which might be the case um, next time, perhaps that will happen. But I still, I still wonder about it. Um, Ed Francis writes, a, a fellow York University alumni figure. Uh, oh, right, yeah. And he listens while walking long evening walks in my local park. That's a great kind of romantic image, uh, Ed. I wonder when you were there at York. Um, kind of a long time ago. Anyway, your brief, for me anyway, quite a long time ago. Your brief commentary on the current soap opera surrounding the royal family and the anachronistic nature of the institution in last week's episode prompted me to reflect on one of the most interesting points you raised in your book, The Rise of the Outsiders. Oh, thank you for referring to that book. I kind of look back to that book and w with a kind of degree of interest. And I thought I might get it out and have a look at it because I think, you know, that thing we did last week, uh, policies or personalities and the kind of waves the deeper tides that drive events I think that book kind of did cover in 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 a fresh way um, anyway in reflecting on the shock victory achieved by Donald Trump in the 2016 election I remember I'd almost finished the book and Everyone thought Hillary was going to win and Trump won. I thought, oh, bloody hell, I'm going to have to rejig everything. You argue that the key to his electoral success was positioning himself as a kind of living embodiment of the state. We're back to that question again of the role of the state and its relationship with voters and of American values. Bearing this in mind, would it be possible to make a devil's advocate argument for the continued value of the monarchy? in 2021 along the following lines by keeping in place a symbolically powerful but in real terms powerless family of national figureheads we close off the space for politicians with authoritarian anti-democratic leanings i'm not sure actually because the problem with that argument you see the monarchy itself is anti-democratic no one elected them and therefore, you, you know, I think they're going to have to, if they want to continue, no one's going to remove them. And they've got too big a following, as we can see from the whole Meghan drama. I mean, she's not even part of it anymore. And look at the attention she's capturing. Uh, but I don't think they will be the reasons why uh, politicians with authoritarian uh, instincts are cut off it will be that the politicians with authoritarian instincts are exposed through democratic engagement um, the monarchy i don't think embodies a nation's values that doesn't mean to say we should get rid of it i think there's a strong argument for it to be uh way way scaled down from 
all the kind of bonkers pomp associated with it. But anyway, uh, thank you for that, Ed. And yeah, uh, I was at York in kind of left in the early 80s. Don't know about you. Uh, a quick one from Jeff Strange. Oh, he mentions Sunak. Uh, the only thing that would make life complete, apart from the obvious, would be listening to you, ideally in person or via the headphones, wandering, not jo wandering, not jogging across the meadows in Edinburgh. Yeah, I think uh, Jeff is uh, nearer North London terrain than the meadows in Edinburgh. Some of you listen whilst wa running or walking through the meadows, and we are all envious um, but hopefully the festival fringe as Jeff says will get us back up and running on Sunak what an interesting Shakespearean subplot that he is he started as a nailed on Thatcherite but could it be that in the coming months he becomes more an acolyte of John McDonnell and Bernie Sanders well I don't want to plug this show again but on Wednesday night I'm going to be addressing that question I wonder whether Sunak is quite in that mold. Uh, he has put the case for the state, but I wonder whether he fully believes it. Tune in on Wednesday. And another neat segue to that, uh, Jeff, is uh, from uh, Dominica Jewell, who writes from uh, France, from a wet and windy Normandy. I see, you know, you're still lucky to be there, Dominica. And she says, and this is a key point, uh, just a thought, having witnessed for the umpteenth time on pointless, do you get pointless in Normandy? Uh, the extremely low scoring of any topic that is related to politics. I'm wondering about the level of political engagement and interest of the average British vo voter. Does this place our rock and roll politics community in the category of geeks? No, no, not, not geeks. We're so cool. More seriously, if the hypothesis is true, what does this say about the results of elections in recent years? Yeah, I'm really pleased you've made this point. Of course, uh, us lot, all uh, involved in uh, listening and taking part in rock and roll politics, we're not exactly uh, reflecting the interests of the average voter. And it is worth remembering always that wrongly, but and sadly, but truthfully, most voters don't follow politics. Danny Finkelstein of the Times writes about when he took George Osborne, his friend, when he was Chancellor, I think, to see Chelsea, and no one knew who he was. And this was a Chancellor cutting public spending in ways that would affect all the lives of every fan in that stadium. They didn't really know. But that has big implications when the state makes the voter reconnect with it, as I think has been the case over this pandemic. And that, Dominica, is what I'm going to be reflecting on live on Wednesday night uh, at the King's Place website, the live stream. So I know you do some lace making, get the lace making out and tune in because um, uh, there's more to it. But you make a good point. We're not that typical in listening to our politics podcasts or taking part in our politics podcasts but what what happens when the rest of the electorate does connect albeit fleetingly i'll leave that hanging in the air
Thanks very much indeed for uh, some brilliant questions and what a range and all highly topical. So those of you who say, why do you allow so many questions? Well, you know, because they're brilliant. They are more insightful than any of the stuff I read um, in most of the newspapers. And uh, thank you for listening. I say do subscribe uh, and see you on Wednesday night where we can have a, well, we can party as we reflect on the relationship between the electorate and the state, where Rishi Sunak stands as a chancellor, and any points you want to raise throughout the whole night. See you there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for the brilliant questions. And let's carry on trying to make sense of a crazy period in British politics. Thank you. Thank you.